Welcome to And Fake Action, the movie podcast with Phil and Dustin. I'm Dustin, and this is Phil. I'm Phil. <laughs> Told ya. What, what's this all about, Phil? Well, we're doing a podcast about movies. This is episode one. Generally speaking, we're going to pick one movie that we really like, or maybe that we don't like all that much, and we're going to talk about that movie and what we think about it. Hopefully, we'll have fun doing it, and hopefully, we'll have one or two listeners, and it'll be great. You, know, you and I both have uh, a love of movies that we've nurtured uh, in various ways over the years. Can you tell me a little bit about where you think the fire started for you? What, what ignited your passion for celluloid? Well, that's a great question. And I, so. I, I, there's no easy answer to it. You know, it was a gradual sort of buildup, you know, when I was a, a kid and the video stores were opening up and we would just go to the video stores and I would rent different movies and I would rent different kinds of movies. Um, I remember having a fascination with the Oscars. We, as you might know, uh, there were almanacs in my house and I was fascinated with the list of all these Oscar winners. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll see if the video store has all these best picture winners. And oh, maybe I'll see if the video store has all the James Bond movies. And I just, it just kind of went from there. When you and I became friends later in our group of friends, we've known each other uh, since high school. Our listeners should know we've known each other for a long time. Actually, junior high. We, uh, junior we just, high. We just didn't right. like each other until that's high right. school. That's right. Well, I that, speak for yourself. I'm sure I liked you just fine. <laughs> but when we started getting together and watching movies together and even sort of making little movies together, and that sort of got me to appreciate more the nuts and bolts of how movies are put together how they're made and it just got me more interested in learning about them and learning about how they're made and it just sort of all went from there. My love of movies uh, came from my dad. He loved going to the movies, good movies, bad movies, he didn't care. Mostly I think he just liked the hot dogs. He would grab me and my sister and he would haul us off to the movies and sometimes we'd see two, maybe three in a day. And, and so just, just by the sheer volume of movies that I was experiencing, I, I just couldn't help but just, you know, have that seep into me and just become part of my DNA in, in a way. Uh, all kinds of movies, too. We watch old Hong Kong kung fu movies on television, um, science fiction movies. Uh, I didn't really go in for the horror when I was young, but my sister did. And it was, I mean, it was all, it was all interesting. And But the thing about, the one thing I will say about the horror movies is my dad always say, it's not real, it's fake. Here's how they did that. And then that just sort of spurned, hey, I want to know how they make the magic. And so I got really excited by that, uh, just from a practical standpoint. And then emotionally, I'm the most emotionally connected I was to a movie when I was young uh, came in 1982. Uh, it was when I saw E.T. Now, I... Loved movies before that. You know, Star Wars, I remember seeing that. Empire Strikes Back, loved these things. Raiders of the Lost Ark, loved them. They were very entertaining, but E.T. was the first one that just completely saturated my emotions. I remember, I didn't know anything about that movie when we went in. When I, I was asking my dad, what is this movie? What is this movie? He would not tell me, which was, was, was just amping up everything inside me. And then the way the movie opens, I thought it was going to be a horror movie. I thought it was going to be scary. And I'm looking at at everything through between my fingers, you know, and then, and then I saw ET and everything changed. And next thing you know, I went from scared 
to just in love with this goofy looking alien. There was there was so much comedy in it, and then there was action, there was adventure, and then next thing I know, I'm bawling my eyes out. A little eight year old kid just just going through the gamut. And so then I, that's when I realized, wow, these movies can actually really touch you, uh, and not just entertain you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for popcorn. I, I, I'm all for bubblegum entertainment. I, I love it. But sometimes it can just kind of find that little spot in you and, and, and make it bigger than even the biggest spectacle. That's where it comes from for me. And as years went by, I met Phil. I met some other friends. We had a little, little core group. And we started making these skits or skittage, as we would call them. My dad had a, a VHS camcorder. Because we're going back here, guys. We're going like 1990, 1991. And we would just make these silly movies. And mostly it was comedy. It was just us, you know, trying to have a laugh. Uh, But we would occasionally really delve into things that I considered to be cinematic. Wouldn't you say, Phil? Definitely. Especially when we got into the more action type skits where we would film little action scenes. So we would try to do fancy things with the camera and we definitely yeah. wanted to make our shots look good we tried to pay attention to the lighting and the sunlight and what was the lighting like indoors yeah it was it was very different than a professional person or even today with digital editing because this was all in camera this was vhs we had to shoot everything in order in in, in single takes we, we would rehearse it a couple of times and then we would shoot the real thing because we couldn't afford to just shoot a bunch of takes and then edit it together later. We didn't have that capability. And sometimes if we were actually recording a take for real and we screwed up, of course, what that meant was we had to rewind the VHS tape in the camera to find mm-hmm. the exact spot where we needed to and then start all over again. And that was always such a crapshoot because you might rewind too far. Right. You might not go far enough and then you'd have this weird little glitch. But and that then, was that was the price you paid. And the more you tape over stuff, the more you kind of degrade the visual quality of what you're looking at, which already started out yep. on VHS is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It was there was definitely um, technological challenges, but it, it was still a lot of fun. But I guess I should just go ahead and mention that's that's pretty much where our name comes from for this podcast. Right. So I'm sure some of you might be wondering what the heck does and fake action mean. I'm not. I know. You know. I know. Right. So we can talk a little bit about the process of how shooting these skits worked when we would rehearse a take and then when we would do one for real. Right. Well, like, you know, like like you mentioned, we would rehearse what we were going to do as we were making these things up on the fly. Almost every time was made up on the fly. We still wanted a good take, so we had to rehearse a little bit first, so we recorded something that actually looked good, you know. we were. on one level, we were trying to make something good each time we made something. Right. But it was being written as we went. So we'd figure out what the next shot was. Okay, let's rehearse this shot. Oftentimes, the actor would, would ask, is this a rehearsal or is this for real? And said, no, yeah. this this one's, this one's for fake. Yeah. This one's for fake. This is, okay. Yeah. And then the cameraman would say, and fake action. And then, and then you'd, you'd go through the camera movements yeah, and the actor would do his thing. Yeah, because then, it was more than just rehearsing the actor's performance because oftentimes the camera was moving. And so yeah, you had to rehearse the cameraman's performance. So there was you know a lot going on in there. But then once you had the rehearsals down, once you had that locked in, then the actor might ask, okay, is this one for real now? Yes, this one will be for real. And then just so everybody was sure, right before the cameraman pressed the button, he would say, and for real, 
action. And he'd press the button, and then we would shoot our scene. Hence, when we introduced this show earlier, I said, and for real action. That's where that comes from, even though we've named the podcast Fake Action. There was a debate, actually, about which title would would work best, and it was put to a vote to some people, and it kind of came out split. And so we kind of leaned towards the fake action. But what do you guys think? I'm just just out of curiosity. If you have an opinion, um, now that you know where the where it comes from, what, what's your thoughts? You might even think both titles are dumb, and have with, a third in which option case, to suggest. You can go straight to hell. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks for stopping by. Is that that's what they say? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, ahead. I'd like to add too. You know, you 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 went on about how your love of movies began, and you kind of blew me out of the water. You were, I felt like I didn't have very much to say, and you had this wonderful story. You know, and I just. I'm sorry, Phil. Get, if funny. I weave a rich tapestry, no, no. it's only because I've lived a life that has just been full of wonder. We and need. <laughs> we need uh, people to bring things to the show, and uh, I think I think you're doing great so far. Oh well, well, well thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I just wanted to give a sh- get, just kind of piggyback on that a little bit and talk about me. You know, I I don't know that I had one experience like that with with ET like you had, but there was a collection of movies in the in the early 80s whether it was my older brothers taking me to the Star Wars movies of course this is the original trilogy or I remember going to the theater to see uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom I was a little young for Raiders of the Lost Ark and I saw that on videotape later and fell in love with that franchise and you know and then of course the cable TV in those days in the 80s was a rich tap panoply tapestry of wonderful goods too. <laughs> I don't know. What was that word? <laughs> a panoply and a tapestry. Check that. Check your dictionary on that. <laughs> Definitely. A plethora. Let's use that one. We'll get to that movie. Would you, would you say? <laughs> a plethora. A plethora? <laughs> Do you know what the plethora is? Oh, we'll get there. So that, that's basically the backstory of how we've gotten to where we are right now, which is basically talking about movies. We're going to talk about Misery, directed by Rob Reiner, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. The question might be, why Misery? It seems like kind of like, you know, like an odd duck to start off a podcast. Well, it's a um, good movie. It is a good movie. It it's a quality movie, Oscar-winning movie in fact, but but it I mean there's so many there's other movies that like, you know, like Phil and I have just a a big big love for, you know, there's the, the Die Hards, the Ghostbusters, the the movies well, along those lines. But there's a reason why we chose Misery. The reason we chose Misery like like you say, we've known each other for quite some time and we go back to junior high and high school. And one of the things that we did with our group of friends was we went to the movies a lot. We went to the movie theater a lot. And I, being the kind of person I am, another story, kept track of every time we went to, every time I went to a movie theater, I kept track. I wrote it down. I wrote down who I was with, what movie theater we went to, and of course, what movie we saw. (laughs) Key detail. And... It so happens that you and I, Dustin, have been to the movie theater, and I might be off by one or two, because my record keeping actually the past few years has not is not entire might be a little bit off. But I have about a hundred and thirty trips to the movie theater that you and I have taken together since 1991, and. 
February 15th of 1991 was the first time you and I went to the movie theater together with another friend of ours, and that movie was Misery. Misery. There it is. So and now you know. Also happens to be a good movie. We decided it, we'd pick it for the first podcast episode. It just seemed fitting because, like, like I said, it is, it is a very good movie. It's our first podcast, so why not start with the first movie we ever saw? It's interesting you you bring up that uh, the list. You you've got a hundred and thirty there. The what I'll note is some years ago you gave me it's a compendium. One hundred and thirty one. You gave me a compendium of all the movies we saw together, and this was basically uh, through like nineteen ninety eight. And it was a hundred movies mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety eight. So in the last twenty three years, we've only seen thirty movies together at the yeah. theater. Yeah. yeah. Well things change. Well, yeah. yeah, we we grew up, we got jobs, we got families. Some years early on where we probably I think one year we went to the movies together probably twenty five, thirty times. Yeah. I know my personal record for going to the theater in one calendar year was like about I think I made it to fifty one year. Wow, and, uh, I beat you. I had 52. And uh, came close to that a couple other times. But, of course, that has decreased massively lately. And, you know, it might be worth mentioning the year 2020 is the very first calendar year where the entire year went by and I did not go to the movie theater once. Wow. For the first time since probably 1980, not even that, 1970-something. I don't know. Wow, that's... That's amazing and kind of I hope sad. the listeners are enthralled by some of these stories. I'm not sure if all of this will stay in the episode, but probably will. Well, that's that's the beauty of editing. If you're interested in hearing about misery, we're about to get started. So hang on. <laughs> Here we go. So, the movie, Misery, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, Starring James Kahn and an Oscar-winning performance by Kathy Bates, based on the Stephen King novel that came out in 1987. Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about Misery? Well, it's based on the Stephen King novel, like you said. It is about um, the writer and novelist Paul Sheldon, who is a famous writer who has written a very successful series of romance novels, centering around a character named Misery Chastain. But he feels trapped by that. He still wants to write the great American novel. He wants to write something different. Yeah. You know? So he, in his last novel that he's just published, Misery Chastain dies in the end. And he just published this novel. And he is about to publish his other, his new one. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's got a new one that he's just written that is not a Misery novel. And he's going to publish that one. Well, it hasn't, he was, he's getting ready to take it. He just finished writing it. He's on his way to take it to his publisher, or his editor, really, uh, to get it published. Um, and that's when tragedy befalls him. He's on the snowy mountain road. His car uh, loses control, and he, his car rolls over, and he's knocked out. And he is rescued by uh, somebody we don't see quite yet. He is rescued by his number one fan. Which can only go well. Right. Annie Wilkes. And he is uh, then in her home where she is nursing him back to health and everything's going okay at first so far so we think. But then things start to go south as he realizes that 
well, first, you know, once she finishes the novel where Misery died, she is very upset, and it turns out she is a mentally unbalanced person who is going to trap him and force him to write another Misery novel where she comes back to life and does it correctly. And she also reads his new novel that he's about to publish, and she doesn't like that either. Too, too many bad words. cock a Right. Uh, some people think that Paul Sheldon's probably dead, so they're not really looking for him. They found his car. He's, he, he, he probably got eaten by animals. But there's one guy, the, the local sheriff, played by Richard Farnsworth, who doesn't think that really adds up. He's, seen th- he's noticed some evidence that just doesn't quite click with him, and he thinks that the, he's probably out there somewhere, and so he kind of goes on investigating himself. And so then, at some point through the story, um, these characters cross paths a couple of times, and, and suspense and tension ensue. It was fascinating how the sheriff character, his his mode of investigation was to was to read the, these series of very long romance novels and eventually come to one little line of dialogue that jogged a memory in his head of something that Annie said. Now he was already suspecting Annie before that. I think I forget. Yeah. How or why? But she bought typing paper. Right. Right. Why would she need typing paper? It same sounds weird today because nobody needs typing paper today, <laughs> but. In 1990, when the movie came out, it makes some more sense. Right. Um, it's 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 a quality flick. It, it really is. It's it's a it's kind of a low key movie. It's small. There's there's really only about. I mean, the main cast is comprised of five people. You know, really, you've got the the two leads, and then you've got a couple of supporting uh, character, maybe three supporting characters, uh, including Richard Farnsworth and a special appearance by Lauren Bacall. Uh, Francis Sternhagen, who was Cliff Clavin's mom on Cheers. I, I, char- character actors always kind of jumped off the screen at me because there's... I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but there's a lovely scene that touched me because I don't think that I really realized that he was in this at the time because I didn't really know who he was. But J.T. Walsh... Oh, yes. ...has a small part playing a police officer and... Kind of an inept one, uh, in a, in a manner of speaking, but it, it, he just went on to have a career of playing some real pieces of crap. <laughs> but he was so good at it. But then he also played a couple of couple couple good guys, um, occasionally tragic. Uh, and, and, and of course, his real life, of course, ended tragically. It did. It was cut very short in the late 90s, and it was it was very sad. But he was one of those character actors that when I saw him in a movie, I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. He's good. He is, he's just really good. So it was a nice treat to see him. But anyway, I got way off track there. No, that's okay, because we wanted to touch on some of those supporting roles. Um, J.T. Walsh, uh, of course, appeared in a more sizable part in a subsequent Rob Reiner film, A Few Good Men. A Few Men. Good Men. Great movie. And um, Richard Farnsworth, who is very enjoyable in this film, also tragically, I forgot about this, but he died by suicide, if I remember my Wikipedia research correctly. Really? I mean, he was 80 years old. Suicide by gunshot. I'm sorry. um, Richard Farnsworth basically euthanized himself. He was suffering from terminal cancer that left him partially paralyzed and in great pain. Okay. So he was trying to go out his own way. Belabor that too much. I am... uh, I didn't know that. I did not know that about him. 
I was going to say that as soon as... I should go ahead and mention right now, spoiler alert. But if you haven't seen a movie that's been out for 30 years, and it gets spoiled for you, that's that's kind of on you. I'll just leave it there. When I saw the character, when I saw... Even then, and I saw Richard Farnsworth, I'm like, this guy's going to die. I just, I mean, you just knew that he was going to die. He was going to be the sacrificial lamb in this Stephen King-based story. And I had well, not read the book. I had not read the book either. And we'll talk a little bit about Stephen King, too. But I will say I do remember that... I don't remember much about that first time we saw the film. But I do remember being surprised when he died. I was surprised. Been, I was surprised when it happened. Because, I mean, the shotgun blast just through his chest when he was looking down the stairs. It was shocking. It was surprising. But I wasn't surprised that that it happened. I just kind of knew that that was going to be the guy because he's such a likable character. It's a Stephen King story. Somebody's going to die and not just the bad guy. It, that's just the way that's just the way it works. And even when I was watching again, I was expecting it. But then he's just like, Mr. Sheldon, blammo. <laughs> yeah, and I was just as shocked as James Conn. It's definitely a shock moment for sure. Well, I guess now would be a good time to talk about a couple things. Number one, we should talk about Kathy Bates a little bit and her performance and sort of what that meant at the time as this movie came out and how her performance is considered one of the great performances, especially in this type of a thriller or horror movie. Um, And we can even talk a little bit about whether or not this should qualify as a horror movie. Some people have different ways of, of defining that. I, I consider it a, you know, a suspense thriller. Yeah. Stephen King wanted to kind of get away a little bit from the horror genre where he was writing a lot of supernatural stuff and he wanted to get into something a little different and how maybe that's kind of what Paul Paul Sheldon was also trying to do too. Stephen King tends to write autobiographically uh, in a lot of his characters. Um, there's, you know, it's, it's write what you know, you know, it's that old adage and he definitely does that. He inserts a lot of himself. I mean, there's a reason why most of his stories take place in Maine and, and it, it works. I mean, he's got a lot of, a lot of knowledge, especially when it comes to writers, he knows writers, he's, he's a writer. And yeah, at that time he was trying to branch out and, and show a different side of himself. And you can definitely see that in the character of Paul Sheldon. He's just sort of desperate to shed that other skin and become who who he who he thinks he really is, you know, in terms of as as a writer. And Rob Reiner talked a little bit too in some of the special features on on this Blu-ray that we have about how he too, coming from a tradition of comedy, was was breaking into a different direction here a little bit too, in terms of doing a suspense thriller or something in the horror, you know. And that's a really good point because yeah, I mean Rob Reiner, he's the son of. You know, the legendary Carl Reiner, comedy legend and, uh, you know, quite a director in his own right. And Rob Reiner, he was he was a a goofy actor on All in the Family. He was Meathead. And there was more to Meathead than than meets the eye. And, you know, he got into directing. Everybody knows about this is Spinal Tap. And uh, and he's he's done some really good movies in, in the late 80s and early 90s. I'd say after. After the mid '90s, his career kind of fell off a little bit in terms of maybe quality of the projects that he was working on. Maybe after North, 
Somewhere that, around there, probably. A little, a little turd. I mean, Ghost of Mississippi, I think, was, was, wasn't was bad, but North was not okay. good. But but he's got Few Good Men, American President. And, of course, the Stand By Me, which is yes. ada- also adapted from a Stephen King. This That one was a short story. In fact, um, Stephen King wrote Misery, and it was a very personal book to him, which I, I can come out right now and say I haven't read that one. But he was, he was very... Um, careful about who he wanted to, to make that into a movie but well when he saw Rob Reiner did such a good job of Stand By Me he was totally happy with Rob Reiner getting control of, of Misery again like you say he was on the set with Carl Reiner when Rob Reiner was a kid and Carl Reiner was making the Dick Van Dyke show and Rob Reiner spent 10 years on All in the Family um, he learned from a practical experience how making movies and TV shows work you know he wasn't part of the movie brat generation that went to film school and was trying to be very cinematic and imitate European art films. Not that there's anything wrong with those, of course. Rob Reiner was doing something different. He was making um, very solid, very well-crafted um, Hollywood entertainment and did a good job with several movies, like you say, throughout the 80s. And, and in this particular movie, I know... He tried to, to sort of study just by watching. He said he watched a lot of Hitchcock movies and suspense movies to learn these techniques. You can see the, Hitch, the Hitchcock. I, for some reason, that was one of the things that I really noticed when I was watching this was the Hitchcock. And maybe I'm getting ahead of things and you want to say a little bit more about him. Yeah, was, The Hitchcock to me was sort of like, was really kind of jumping out. I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say that he was pulling a De Palma and doing like straight riffs on Hitchcock, but it really had a Hitchcock vibe. From the pacing, from the shot selection to the, the music, even it just the music was sort of like a almost like a old school suspense movie kind of music, um, and it just it sort of jumped out at me on this viewing, you know, so many years later that I don't I don't think I even picked up on that back then. Obviously, I know a lot more about those movies. I think in 1991, I'd probably only seen a handful of Hitchcock movies. Since then, I've seen many more. Um, but one of the things that jumps out at me in this movie, I sort of, as I'm watching it, I'm I'm thinking this is sort of like, in a way, what if Rear Window had Jimmy Stewart's character and Raymond Burr's character in the same room? Wow. Yeah. Phil surprised at like... my insight. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's a great way to look at this movie. That's kind of what's sort of happening. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, you, I mean you've got the guy. He's he he's bound. He he he's immobile. He can't go anywhere. He has no way of contacting the outside world, really. But what he can see is insanity in front of him. And um, I want to talk a minute about um, you know, the, the casting. You know, we talked a little bit about Kathy Bates, and she was obviously perfectly cast. So good. And I know that that when they were casting the role of Paul Sheldon, you know, they went through the usual list of the Hollywood heavy hitters at the time, and nobody was really biting, really. I think they I read... They didn't want to be trapped in a bed for the whole movie. Yeah, they, they just didn't... It just didn't seem exciting to them, you know, to, to play those characters. And I, I think I read somewhere that Warren Beatty was kind of attached, but he even wanted it to be... He wanted to be less of a passive role, more active. They, they approached, apparently, to some degree or another, people like Harrison Ford, Richard yep. Dreyfus, Kevin Klein, William Hurt, 
Gene Hackman, Richard Gere, I think somebody said Jack Nicholson, I think somebody said Bruce Willis. Pretty much the be-all end-all of Hollywood leading men at that time were considered or approached even, um, and then they, they ended up, you know, somebody's like, says, well, what about James Caan? And so they asked James, James Caan's like, for him, the challenge of playing a role that you are forced to be more passive and you're just reacting to another character almost entirely to him. That was the challenge. And I think he's right because that is kind of hard to do. It's easy to chew the scenery or easier to chew the scenery. I think, uh, in many ways, whereas he's forced to, he sees what's going on with this character of Annie Wilkes. He sees that she's becoming more and more unhinged but he's trapped. So how does he deal with that? He has to navigate that. And the way he has to do that is sort of make nice, but at the same time, let us know as an audience that he's scared that he's, this isn't, this isn't cool. And he's worried about what's going to happen to him. And he, I think he does such a good job at holding that level just under the surface that sort of, I'm nervous in this scene. I'm not, a complete victim, but I know I could be at any second. Yeah. Another thing I think that really works in James Conn's favor in this role is he's a very, he's a, he's a big man. He's a very physically imposing, broad shouldered, barrel chested guy. He's got the square shoulders of any actor that ever lived. Yeah. So for him to be, have his legs shattered and to be trapped in the bed, uh, unable to move, unable to get out, I think, that creates a tension, you know, for the audience to watch that more so than it would if you saw some of these other actors in a role who maybe aren't as physically imposing, you know. Or I, I can't see Richard Dreyfus in that That's role. That's one of the know? people I'm thinking of, you know. <laughs> I can't see it. Yeah. I mean, James Caan is the guy who, um, of course, super famous for his role in The Godfather, yep. where he was a jerk and... Very physically imposing and very um, he's played fly a lot. off the handle, hot-tempered, um, where's the wife beater, and yeah. if I recall the movie correctly, literally did beat his wife at, at some point in the story. Yeah. I don't know. He's played a lot of tough Pick guys. At, you know, a yeah. lot of tough guys, and this role is a little bit different. Kind of a, sometimes kind of a jerky persona, you know, comes from, I think of his character in uh, Elf, where he plays the Will Ferrell character's mm-hmm. dad, mm-hmm. where he's, t- you know, pretty he's, much a total jerk. Yeah. He strikes me as the kind of a guy who would not have a lot of tolerance for a swooning fan, you know, that that wants autographs or wants to be his number one. But he's trapped and he's, you know, has to kind of. Well, it's initially when I when I think of it, like that movie, when like I'd seen James Conn in a number of things um, before I saw uh, Misery. Um, in fact, one of my guilty pleasures of the 80s is a movie called Alien Nation, in which he stars with uh, Mandy Patinkin. So he's like, you know, a gruff, kind of grizzled cop, you know, in L.A. And he always kind of had that that burly kind of tough guy, gruff exterior. And then when I'm seeing him as a romance novelist, yeah, it, it took a second for me to kind of click on that. But then as I watch him play the character, I'm like, okay, I, I can actually buy it because he plays the character a little more soft-spoken than he often is in his other roles. He's a little little gentle. He does push back on on Annie a few times when 
when she she complains about the swearing in his new novel, and he's like, well, that's you know, that's that's the way you know people talk. That's the way I I talked when I was a kid. And she just wasn't having it. But he's like, well, okay, I'm gonna gently say, well, no, this is how it is, and then. And that's her first sort of fly off the handle scene. Yeah. Kathy Powerhouse Bates. Kathy Bates. You look at her IMDb page and she's got a lot of credits before this movie. There's a lot of credits. For a second, I thought this was her first movie, but it's not. It, she's got a lot of credits, but it was mostly, you know, bit character stuff. And then this movie just sort of, I, she got a chance to set the stage on fire and she brought a, uh, a tanker truck with her. She was big on Broadway from what I understand. And, um, if a, if a more well-known actress was in this part, I, I'm not sure it would have worked as well. The quantity to, to the vast majority of the audience. And I want to, that brings me back a little bit. I want to come back to Hitchcock a little bit and this whole idea of suspense and how that works. Uh, when I was listening to some of the, this is why we need a little more structure. When, <laughs> no, this is good. When I was listening to some of the commentaries, I, I actually really enjoyed William Goldman's commentary. Um, he's kind of talking about the writing process and, and how the movie is structured. Every, people wanted to talk about how we wanted to delay, delay for as long as we can before we find out how crazy she really is. You know, keep the audience guessing, keep the audience thinking, um, you know, is she really a sweet person who's nursing them back to health? Is she and I'm listening and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, and that works as you're watching the movie and suspending your disbelief. But honestly, how many of us, even at that time, especially you know, knowing it was a Stephen King novel, we knew, you know, we most people knew going into the movie yeah. kind of the premise and kind of what was going to happen. So this, the suspense really was in, okay, well, we know this woman's going to turn out to be a crazy nutcase. The suspense is, is going to be in how long before James Caan finds out about it? How long before she reveals it to us, to James Caan? And then, you know, how can he get away? And how crazy? Because the crazy is revealed in layers. As as the story progresses, you get you get these little nuggets that sh- that show that she's a little more unhinged than we thought, a little bit more unhinged than that, and then a little more unhinged than that, and then by the time he gets to the scrapbook, we've got a pretty good idea that this lady is not playing with a full deck. Her lunacy. There's the times that she just flies off the handle like that, and, you know, as a drop of a hat, she flies off the handle. Great. That yeah okay she's nuts. The scene where it was raining and she just walks in and she is basically has nothing on her face. She and he's like Annie you know what's wrong, and she's just like the rain gives me the blues. Yeah, yeah. and she's just and it's like there's a tension because you know at this point that she's unhinged and now that you see that she's not she's not going off the handle she's not being her kind of manic self, she's just nothing. And that's almost scarier than when she is going off the handle. Because it's like, well, where's it going to go? And then when she just sort of casually pulls out a pistol, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you you introduce even more tension. And it's that, that, that scene I thought was um, particularly deft at getting across the, the depth of her condition, yeah. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And Paul Sheldon's tension. Crap, this could be my last moment. If I don't just play this right and, and make sure she's okay, then I may not have a tomorrow. Right. And you really feel that across that scene. And she's so good at, too, at playing the, 
know, she really pulls off being this, this sweet person, innocent person too sometimes, you know. There's this one line that, that she says. that It's amazing that a person can deliver this line and pull it off. This farm was kind of dreary with just a few cows and chickens and me. But when I got misery here, everything changed. She just makes me smile, so... You see how awful it is when I read it? <laughs> see how she pulled... But she pulls it off. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The whole look of the character, the the whole design, the 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 wardrobe, the the hair, the makeup, everything is just so perfect for that character. I took a shot. Uh, there's a if you blink you'll miss it, but you don't see her in her bedroom in her home environment very much in the film. But there's a, is a quick shot in the film. The way they design her bedroom, she's got the the the, the chips she's eating. She's drinking right Cheetos. out of a two liter, and at the end of her bed is a big hope chest. She's just the type of person you know has a big hope chest. Mm-hmm. Probably know. animal bones in it. That, right. <laughs> Who knows? So, But let's talk a little bit about her and this character's backstory, which is kind of touched upon a little bit, but they kind of keep it kind of vague, kind of on purpose. A couple questions about her, where she's been, and a couple questions about where she wants to go in this story as a character. Now, as far as where she's been, has she... Sp- Spent time in prison and has gotten out? Or did she evade prison and now she's kind of moved to a town where nobody knows her? I can't say specifically, but I, or exactly, but I believe, yes, I believe that she probably went to jail for a little while. And for what? Because if, because we're sort of led to believe, right, you don't just go to jail for a little while for killing babies. It depends on the evidence they've got. Okay. (laughs) They, They've left it. They've left it vague. We, we can t- we can talk about the United States justice system <laughs> okay. if you want, but I think that's another podcast. Um, and sometimes when I watch movies, I catch myself thinking about little practical matters like this. Like, so here she is living in this town. She's in this kind of big house, kind of a way. There, there, uh, there was talk. I guess she used to be married, but she's not anymore. Um, does she currently have a job? I know she used to be a nurse. Obviously, is she currently a nurse? No, I don't. Income? I don't believe that she is employed. She I believe work? that she what? probably lives on whatever. I think it was a family farm, so there was probably some bit that was maybe left to her from okay. her parents. That's my guess. Again, it's not stated. Where, right. It might be covered in the book, uh, but I never read the book. I didn't either. And so let's talk a little bit about. Um, if you stop the movie and, and and think a little bit about what's. Annie Wilkes endgame here so she finds herself in a situation where now she's got her favorite writer trapped in her home she finds out that he, that he killed off her favorite character he's going to make him write a new book to bring her back to life she's got him trapped here and he knows what's what's her end game after that he's going to publish this novel and it's going to be great and obviously I think I mean she's not going to ever let him go at any point obviously she knows at some point she's going to have to kill him and she basically or, decides that yeah. at the end of the movie. She's like, yeah, we're basically, you wrote the book and now it's over. We're both going to die. But I think before that, she would have been content to just keep him there, churning out Misery Chastain novels for as long as she so could. As long as it could last. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think when when characters like this that are so far detached from their world's reality that there's a whole lot of planning 
right. and sound execution of said plans. And so they just sort of do what they do and hope it can go for as long as they it, it can. Uh, and I think that's that's what triggers Paul at the end to to take her out, you know, best he can, is she's basically planning on ending them both. She says, I know what I have to do because he's never going to stop trying to get away. She's going to have to end them, but then she knows that if she kills her favorite writer, then, well, that's going to be it for her, so she's going to take the easy way way out after that. Well, if the sheriff didn't come poking around, you know, which caused the necessity for her to murder him, so then more people will look for him, maybe she could have gotten away with it. If no one ever knew Paul Sheldon was there, she could have got rid of him, buried him in the back, and, you know be done with it so before this podcast ends um which may still be a little ways away we have some more things to talk about Mm -hmm. but we 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 probably can't talk about misery without mentioning of course its most famous scene ah yes which happened you're you're speaking of the the hobbling i suspect absolutely yeah that was that that's that's an intense scene and it's funny that i remembered it much more graphically than it actually appears uh, when I saw it again. Because I, I hadn't seen this movie since probably the early 90s. I'd probably seen it maybe once, maybe twice after we saw it at the theater. Well, actually, when we saw it at the theater, it was actually my second time seeing it. I've seen it, saw it maybe one more time after that. And then I haven't seen it since. So, But I remembered I that hobbling. I did not realize that was your second time. Oh, yeah. You must have gone to see it uh, before. Okay. I saw it with my dad and my sister and uh, another friend of ours. Excellent. Who bore a striking resemblance to Annie Wilkes at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, we went and it was around, it was, because it came out in like November 30th yeah, or something like that. And so it was around Christmas that we went and saw it together. And I think it was at actually Oakland Mall. We might have actually saw it, which I rarely went to that theater, you know, just mm-hmm. a handful of times. But anyway, that's all going to get cut out of this. My point is, is I remember that scene being very, very graphic, and I and I could have swore they showed both ankles being broken, but in fact they only show the one. Well, that's the trick of editing. That's Absolutely, right. you've seen the one, you picture the second one in your head. Yeah. And and from what I read, like uh, in the original book, she actually severs one of his feet with an axe. That's right. And I, thought, I thought it was both, but maybe it was just one. But um. And that's a good. That's an interesting point because they made the decision in the film to do it differently, and I think it works better the way they did it in the film. Yeah, I'm sure it works great right in the book for what the book is. I'm not taking anything from that. But I think I think if you have that, you you mentioned earlier, it's like, would you classify this as a horror movie? And I think if you have her cutting off limbs with an axe, I think there it becomes go. a horror movie. Yeah, I think just using this the sledgehammer and breaking the ankle. Yeah, it's horrific, but it's not quite as graphic and, and and I agree I think Rob Reiner was making the point that it kills any little bit of sympathy you have for Annie you want to have a little bit of sympathy for this woman who's clearly has has some issues if you make that person become an outright monster it's impossible to have sympathy for them anymore so you need to hold off on the monster as long as you can but you still need certain horrific things to happen so I think they they definitely made a good choice there and for that brief shot of the ankle being cracked, I mean, it's. I, I, I want to bring up um, the makeup effects that were done by uh, Greg Nicotero, who most people would know today as one of the main people involved with the Walking Dead franchise. 
does some amazing makeup. But in this movie, the makeup has to be like, it's not zombies. It's not things that we're not familiar with. It's things that maybe we have seen, you know, it's broken legs. It's, you know, um, cuts on the face. It's things like that. Mm -hmm. And the makeup is pretty flawless. Uh, When you see his legs after the car accident and she pulls the blankets down so he can see them. My God, I felt it. And they they talk about how they want to make some of the shots on some of those uh, prosthetics kind of quick. So you don't linger too long and, you know, and maybe longer you look at that stuff, the more it might look fake. Yeah. Well, and you start, you start to fixate on it and you, again, it's like, you know, show the one ankle and let you imagine the other one. I learned that uh, a couple of the shots there in the end fight scene were, um, you know, when Kathy Bates' head falls on the typewriter or when there was maybe one other scene where she falls and slams on the floor. It was actually a prosthetic head. Yes. I was going to mention that that was my one actual disappointment. It looks like a fake head. Yeah. It, it, the, the makeup even on the, the legs, the, quick shot the angles, no, it was, it looked too fake. I think they probably would have done better had they made a fake, whatever it was she hit her head on. Was it, what was it that she oh, hit her head on? Was it the well, table? At one point she landed on a typewriter. But she got hit with a typewriter. And when she finally hits her head on something, I don't remember what, whatever it is, they would have done better having that thing be uh-huh. fake and her real head hit it. It was just so obvious to me that that's, that wasn't a real person. To come back to the, the, the James Conn and the casting concept, I think, when I, when I was watching the end fight scene, it really helps that James Conn, again, is who he is and is that physically imposing character. We can believe that he can build up his muscles by lifting that typewriter, and we can believe that he can get out of that wheelchair and, and roll around on the floor with Kathy Bates and kick her butt, you know, yeah. because of his physical... Some of these other actors they were considering, I'm not sure, could pull that off. Right. It's a very well put together movie, from the casting to uh, the the music, the the shot selection. I actually want to talk a little bit about that shot selection because uh, we were talking a little bit before we actually started recording this, and I had mentioned that I was surprised to find out that Barry Sonnenfeld actually lensed this movie and. Barry Sonnenfeld in the early or mid eighties um, was responsible for some of my favorite cinematography, two movies in particular, raising Arizona and three o'clock high, three o'clock high. I yep. love the way those movies are shot. I didn't realize he did three o'clock high. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see, you, you can see it's definitely shares DNA with raising Arizona. Uh-huh. Um, three o'clock high might be one that we actually do. I'd love to talk about that one again. It might be. Yeah. Uh, and maybe even Raising Arizona. I, I, that's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Uh, anyway, um, back to the point. I love the way those movies shot. They're just so dynamic, the way that they move the camera in those movies. Whereas in this movie, it's like the opposite. It's long, lingering takes. It's steady shot, reverse shot. You know, you have Annie being Annie and then Paul having to react to it. It's almost, it's almost like it's on a stage. It's fine, but when I look at it and I and I see the name Barry Sonnenfeld, and I'm like, is that the guy they needed for this? A little different than he than he usually does. Well, I'm thinking those movies, and then I then I start start thinking about the movies that he's directed. You know, the Adams Family movies, the the Men in Black movies. They have such a visual style to them that this movie doesn't really. The visual style doesn't leap off the screen. It's not a character, whereas. It's a character in most of those other movies. It's not. And I think, obviously, it's a good thing, 
But I'm just like, yeah. Why him then? <laughs> they could have any. I don't know. It just seemed like when I'm going down the list of of Barry Sonnenfeld shot things, it's just on. I don't. Maybe it's closer to like Blood Simple, where it's yeah, not Gonzo. You know, but could be. I don't know. Anyway. Barry Sonnenfeld do Blood Simple. I'm not sure. Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Pardon my ignorance. <laughs> thank thank um, you for second guessing. I, I do, no, no. I do um, remember they were talking a little bit on some of the special features too about the ph- photography and the cinematography and how they wanted to because it was kind of a static setting in, in in the in the one room for most of the time. They wanted to take every chance they could to sort of light things interesting, interestingly, or when they had a little uh, establishing shot. Uh, lay things differently than the last thing was, you know, and, and 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 mix things up. And I also think that another reason to have the the photography be a little more static is it lends to a certain sense of claustrophobia. Absolutely, you've got this guy trapped in this room, and it's it's not an entirely small room, but the house itself, when he is able to wander into the rest of the house, the house is just full of stuff. You know, there's angles, there's corners, um, and it just seems like a um, a claustrophobic place to be in. So, I, I think they made the right choices. Like I said, I was just surprised yeah. when I saw his name there. Yeah. Speaking of of plays and how, the, in some senses, this reminds us of a play. Apparently, there was briefly a play of this movie made a few years after the fact. I was Broadway or off Broadway or wherever it was, but you know who was in it? I do not. Bruce Willis. And Laurie Metcalf. Really? I can kind of see Laurie Metcalf doing that. She's such a talented actress. She can pretty much do anything. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Willis. I can see him yeah. in this phys- his physical type. I can see him pulling off similar to what James Kyle was able to pull off. Yeah, I mean, you said this. So this was in the 90s then still. I think so. I could definitely see him uh, being able to pull that off in maybe a stage production. But I, I, I don't know that I would have preferred him in the role in the movie, though. Okay. I, well, I, I, go ahead. I have something I want to I wanna mention. Um, something that... It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart a lot when I see it. And I, and I see it in movies. I see it in a lot of movies. And it's very, very sad. <sighs> Almost any time I see a classic Mustang in a movie, I know it's going to get messed up. That is sad. I, I know it's going to get messed up. The Mustang, classic Mustang, for years has been one of my favorite cars. And too many times, too many to count, I have seen these cars senselessly, needlessly destroyed for the purposes of our entertainment. It's sick. It's disgusting and it needs to stop. There's only so many of them left. Why can't they just destroy a Corolla? Why does that why does it have to be a Mustang? Come on, Paul Sheldon. You don't you don't need to be driving a Mustang up in the mountains in the in the middle of the wi- of winter. I mean, get yourself a Bronco or something. I'm sorry. It just Excellent. Okay, well we'll make sure that 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 uh, that was Phil's way of telling justice. me to shut up. No, no, I want uh, your message to reach the right people, and we can have we can make those arrangements. Do we want to talk? Do we? Uh, obviously, it sounds like we like the movie. I yes, I uh, 
uh, overall, yeah, I like the movie. It's a quality movie. Uh, is it one I'm going to watch again next year? No, probably not. Uh, it it does what it needs to do. It's kind of a it's a quiet, suspenseful thriller. It's I, I checked on Rotten Tomatoes. It currently holds ninety percent, which is a pretty solid rating. It's got such a good pedigree. So it's definitely if you've not seen it, it's definitely worth a watch. You should definitely. Um, you know, take a chance and, and and give it a look. Would you agree? I agree. Fantastic. So this is the part of the show where maybe we uh, do some end segments or, or wrap things up. We don't know what we're doing for episode two. No, we don't. Now, as we mentioned before, this movie was the first movie we oh, saw right. together, but that doesn't mean that we're going to just run off that list because we've got lots of movies that we want to talk about. Yeah, there was talk that we would structure the, this, this series. Well, maybe for the second episode, we'll talk about the second movie we went to see in the theater. And for the third episode, we'll talk about the third movie we saw in the theater. And so forth. But That's not going to work, clearly, no, because... We, we've seen some crap. You can imagine. Right. We just, and there's plenty of wonderful movies that we love that we did not see in the theater together. You know, that were released throughout the 1980s. Or, However, or 1940s, and I, we're going to talk about those. I am looking forward to the episode in which we discuss Airheads. I too am looking forward yeah, to that episode, gonna... as I am looking forward to watching the film a second time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen it a second time. I think uh, I just saw it the one time. I think I may have seen it one other time. I don't know. I'm not sure. There, I don't know. I watched a lot of movies a second time back then. That today I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah. give a second thought about oh i should mention you know we, we were talking earlier about how you know you know i we, we we had a love of movies um we liked making our videos when we, we each went to college and uh took our fair share of film courses uh we also both worked for blockbuster video yes that's true and that's i wish we remembered that earlier because <laughs> i thought of that in in the days leading up to this that's we should mention we did not work at the same blockbuster video no. Um, although I, th- the way they worked, you could occasionally work at other stores and fill in for people. So there, I think there were one or two occasions where we did actually work together. I, I never worked at yours. Right. I so worked at yours. You might have come to mind. I did do that for a while. I jumped around. Yeah. But again, and we should talk about the, you know, the, well, we don't want to get into the long, sad history of video stores in the 80s and we'll, 90s. We'll save that for another but episode. part of what encouraged our our love of movies i think for both of us was was you know also being able to work there and and rent movies at a discount or for free or whatever the deal was and i i have uh i still have a number of posters that i took from my days at uh I, posters for movies that i uh, why do i have a po- i have a poster for carlito's way i don't need a poster for carlito's way but i it was going to go in the trash so i took it <laughs> I took many posters like that too, and I kept some and didn't keep others. But I think I still have some. But we will get into, I think, more our um, our video store histories. I think in in future episodes because I think there's some some nuggets to mine from that. In the meantime, so yeah, so that yeah, that's the, that's the podcast. That's that's episode one. Episode one is uh, maybe a little rough around the edges. That's okay. We're feeling things out. We'll evolve as we go. Yeah, we're we're gonna see how this see how this goes. We're gonna run a few things. Um, I was gonna say run about the flagpole. That's not what I mean to say. There's <laughs> no flagpole. <laughs> there is no flagpole to run things up. This is it. This is just the two of us. I don't even know what I'm talking about. 
but yeah, the, the format is going to evolve. Um, our abilities to converse with one another, I think <laughs> probably have room to grow. Uh, but uh, in general, um, yeah, I think I enjoyed the experience. How about you, Phil? Yes, sir. Great. That was aggressive. <laughs> I like it. Keep it coming. Just you know, you know, just shout it out there. Um, uh, like I said, we don't know exactly. We're not sure what our next movie is going to be. We haven't quite settled on it. Although we didn't settle on it. No, no, we no, didn't. no, no. We didn't. Yeah, because you, you, when we were talking the other day, we have day, some ideas which will remain suspenseful for yeah. everybody involved. So yeah, it'll be a surprise. So no teaser in this episode for the next episode. Episode. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Uh, and in between, please go enjoy some movies. Yeah. Once again, this has been Fake Action, the movie podcast with Phil and Dustin. <laughs> Press the button, Philip. Excellent. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast or this episode's movie, consider following us on social media for links, pics, and other fun stuff. All of our ads are in the description for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Now go watch some movies.